suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking that what I did not reap, uh, that what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, "Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas." And they said to him, "Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has." will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, Lord, we need to, to hear from you. We need you to speak to us in a mighty way. Lord, you have promised us that that when your word is proclaimed that you will be faithful to meet with your people you'll be faithful to apply these words to our hearts and Lord the reality of the of the situation is I cannot do that I can't apply these words so that they penetrate to those places and so Lord we need you Lord meet with us help us to, to see Jesus in these words we ask these things in Jesus name amen Investing what you have been given. Uh, well, for most of us, the, the idea or maybe the challenge of investing uh, is one that is pretty familiar to us in our Western society. Certainly, most often we, we think of investing in terms of money and long-term financial independence. Uh, but really, investing is a concept that each of us has to consider uh, no matter how much wealth we may or may not have. Uh, we fed the football team this week, and I actually gave them a little preview of this, and I said similar words to them there. And they kind of grinned when I started talking about money and investing, and I said to them, I'm sure none of you have money to invest. Or maybe you do, and if you do, that's great, you know, good for you at this point in your life. But the point that I wanted to make th to them is that every day we wake up and, and we decide... How will, we, how will we invest all sorts of things? We decide how will we invest our talents, uh, our education, and maybe most importantly for us, we decide how we will invest our time. And the goal, of course, is to choose from all of the various options in such a way uh, that we maximize our opportunities and that we maximize our future return, our future 
uh, endeavors, our future possibilities. The problem, of course, is that choosing between the options to decide what will be in our best long-term interest, uh, it's not always easy to do, is it? Uh, I remember when I was a senior in high school, Ingemar had a tradition then. I don't know if they still have it. We may have ended it. They had a, a tradition of a senior skip day. Uh, and the problem when you go to a school whose graduating class is 24 people, um, it's difficult to hide something like a, a senior skip day. And it also becomes more than just a senior skip day. It becomes a whole like high school skip day. Everybody goes. And so, you know, when you're weighing the options of whether you want to continue this tradition, you have to ask, is this worth investing in? Is it better to, you know, invest in school? Or, in our case, was it better to go and invest in a day of fishing? Now, you can imagine that for me, investing in the fishing seemed like a great idea, right? But for Mr. Sammy Bryant, who was Jordan's granddaddy and who was our principal, investing in fishing was not the right move. That was not what he intended for us to do. And so when he called us back to school that day, when he called us back from the lake to the school, I realized that maybe I had not made the best long-term investment. At least for him, the return was not worth it. And so again, my, my point is that choosing between how to invest and how not to invest, what to invest in, uh, it can be difficult. And sometimes, at least in the right circumstances, it can even be life-altering. And so for each of us, we need help. We need help knowing how best to invest the things that we have. How best to invest the things that God has given us. Well, in this passage before us this morning, Christ has given us what we, what we might call some investment counseling. And he does it through this parable of the ten minus. Now, you'll notice that, that once again, as Luke has done several times in the past few weeks, he gives us sort of the, the big picture point of the parable here at the very beginning, right? Notice there in verse 11. He says, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Again, and we've seen this over and over again, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they struggle with this Jewish worldview, a Jewish view of what the Messiah had come to do. Uh, they're struggling with the timeline of events. And so Jesus here is speaking to them so that they will understand, at least to some degree or another, uh, the reality of what he had come to do now. They, they were expecting a Davidic king who would rule and reign and conquer the Romans. And while he will come back to do that, for now, that was not what he had come to do. And so this passage helps them to focus their minds. And particularly, you know, you think of Theophilus, who was the original reader of this. Jesus has already ascended into heaven. And so he's struggling with that timeline, right? We know that those first century Christians, they, they struggled over and over. When's Jesus coming back? So Luke is writing to Theophilus to help him see here the reality of the circumstance. So we, we see this sort of big picture of the parable as a whole. But what I want you to notice is that in making that point, Jesus also reveals to us how his people should live in that interim time. You know, as we await his glorious return, our obligation, I want to make sure I say that to you clearly today, our obligation, not our option, not our choice, 
But what he has commanded us to do is to take our gifts and our talents and to use them for him, to use them for his kingdom, to invest for him. One day, friends, he will return and we are going to stand before him and give an account of these things. And so the question before us today is how are you investing what you've been given? Well, let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is a potential king's departing commands. A potential king's departing commands. And you see it there uh, in verses 11 through 14. Now, before we, we jump right into it, I think it will be helpful to note uh, that, that what Jesus is telling us here. Uh, is actually something that would have been very familiar to the people he was speaking to. These were our actual, it's a story based off of actual historical events. And now normally I wouldn't take the time to read something as long as what I'm about to read to you, but I want to do it today because I think as you read through this parable, it's going to help you really understand what, what Jesus is trying to say. So bear with me and hear what this says. So this is from uh, Philip Ryken. It says this, when Herod the Great died at 4 BC, uh, it was obvious to almost everyone that his son Archelaus would take his throne in Judea. However, there was only one man in the entire world who had the power and authority to crown Archelaus as king, the emperor Caesar in Rome. Although Archelaus began to rule immediately upon the death of his father, his royal title could be ratified only by Caesar Augustus himself. And so Archelaus made the long journey to Rome where he expected to be crowned as king in the temple of the Palatine Apollo. Unfortunately for Archelaus, there was active opposition to his monarchy. And when he arrived in Rome, he discovered that some of his own family members were rival claimants to the throne. Even worse, a delegation of 50 Jewish leaders came from Jerusalem seeking an audience with Caesar and claiming that Archelaus was unfit to govern. To govern. During the Passover, there had been a disturbance at the temple, and soldiers of Archelaus had rashly slaughtered some 3,000 worshipers. The delegation from Jerusalem, backed by thousands of Jews who were then living in Rome, petitioned Caesar to liberate them from the authority of Archelaus. The whole business took much longer than anyone expected, but eventually Caesar decided to give Archelaus the opportunity to prove that he was worthy to be the king. Not surprisingly, when Archelaus returned to Judea, he executed swift punishment against the men who had rebelled against his rule. He went away as a contender, but he returned as king, ready to exercise his royal authority. Now, I realize that was long, and I hope you were able to track along with me, because if you were, you recognize in that account the details that Jesus gives here in this parable, right? In verse 12, you have a nobleman who is expecting to be king. But for whatever reason, he cannot become king until he leaves, until he goes and is ratified as king in another place. In verse 14, you notice that there is strong opposition to his being king. So strong, in fact, that there is a delegation that goes before him to try and prevent him becoming king. We can imagine, given that strong opposition, that those events most likely took much longer than anyone expected. And so there was this, this great delay in the king leaving and in the king coming back. Again, 
Christ is not just here rehashing historical events, but he's also trying to help us, uh, his hearers, and us too, understand the reality of what will come, of what will happen. He is the son of the king who will travel through foreign lands. He will travel through death. He will travel through the grave to receive a kingdom. Many will reject him. Many are rejecting him, right? But he, after a time, will return victorious, reigning with the authority of God himself. Now, we're going to see what that means for those who have opposed him in a moment. But for now, just recognize that Christ is confirming the delay in his second coming. And because that time will pass, he wants us to realize how we should live accordingly. So notice, uh, the potential king in our story, uh, he calls together ten of his servants, and he gives each of them one mina. One mina, which would have been about three months' wages for them. So not an insignificant amount of money. And he tells them to go and do business with it. Go and invest it so that when he returns, his money will have made money, right? He is entrusting to them his property. And the clear expectation, the command, is that they take what they have been given and they increase it. Again, it's not a suggestion. It's not an option. These are the clear expectations. So, we have a potential king's departing command. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice a returning king's yield on investment. Verse 15, the time passes and the king returns. He has received the kingdom. And now, now the question is, what have these servants done with the gifts that he had given them? And notice... As they begin to come to him, uh, things start out pretty well. Verse 16, one mina has become now ten. Verse 18, one has become five. Clearly here, these are two servants who had been faithful with their master's money. They had invested well. And so it's interesting to note that we might think, they might start to kind of toot their own horn a little bit, right? They might say here, Master, look at what we've done. Let me tell you how I did all of these great things to get this return on your investment. I want you to notice there that that's not what they say. Instead, they say, your mina has made ten. Your one mina has made five. In other words, they recognize that ultimately... It was not their brilliance. It was not their abilities that produced such a large return. But it was the master's good gifts itself. The gift had caused the increase. Yes, they had been faithful in investing it. But it was the mina that really did the work. So that now what they give back to this king is nothing but his own, right? It's nothing but what he had given to them. Now, as we go to apply this in just a minute, that's going to be really important. So I want you to keep that in your mind. But but notice now how even though the credit really belongs to the king himself, notice how he rewards these faithful servants. He does so in ways that are both proportional to what they have done and yet also in ways that are well beyond what they have done. Notice, each is rewarded according to his works. 
it's not a one-size-fits-all prize. It's, it's not a participation trophy. It's based off of what these servants had actually done. One brought ten, and he received ten. One brought five, and he received five. Note there, the king actually accounted for the individual works of the person. That's amazing that he cared enough to see what they had done, and he accounted for it. At the same time, though, notice, what did they receive ten and five of? Not ten and five minas or ten or five more years' worth of wages. They received ten and five cities to rule over. Let's be honest. That, that seems like a pretty extravagant reward given what little they had really done in the grand scheme of things. I, I recognize that, that they had brought in not just a small amount of money, but really, you know, if, if I give one of my kids $20 and I say, hey, go to the concession stand, and they bring me back change, I'm not going to say, hey, now you can rule my house, right? I'm not going to give them that sort of authority. Basically, that's what this king is doing. He's gone away, he's given them this money, they've been faithful with it, and now he says, here, rule in my kingdom. How, how can he justify doing something like that? Well, notice there in the second half of verse 17, he says, because you have been faithful with little, I now entrust with you these things. In other words, their faithfulness with, with these small amounts of things was an indication to the king of how they would be faithful with much bigger things, with larger things, far more important things, even authority here as he rules. The king rewards his faithful servants. And so things here, that they start out well. But notice there's a final servant in our story, one who seems to have done nothing at all with the mina that the king had given him. And he stands as a warning to each of us today. Verse 20, rather than listening to the master's commands, uh, rather than following the lead of his fellow servants, uh, rather than doing anything constructive at all with what he had been given, this man takes it and he hides it away so that it could gain no value. And his excuse is that he was afraid. Afraid of losing what he had, or maybe afraid of the consequences that would come if he lost what he had. And look at who he blames there. Not himself, not his fellow servants, but he blames the master. Basically, he says, boss, I was afraid of you. It's because of you that I didn't do anything with this money. Now, it's hard to know if that excuse was legitimate, like if he, if he really felt that way or if this was just the first thing that he could come up with. But I'll be honest with you, I think, I think he really felt that way. I think he really felt of his master that this was the kind of person that he was. Problem is, is the master has shown himself in the story not to be that kind of master, right? He's given them these gifts, and yes, he expected them to invest it well, but he had given to his servants. And then when he returns to the ones who had been faithful, he gives 
above and beyond what they actually deserve. He has shown himself in this story to be generous. But this man, for whatever reason, he, he doesn't recognize that. He does nothing with it. And so, just for the sake of argument, it seems that, that this master, he acknowledges the excuse. He says, this, this, as it believe that your premise is true. He says, even so, if you knew I was a severe man, if you thought I was going to punish you, you should have at least taken it and put it in the bank, right? Because at least in the bank, it would draw a little bit of interest. At least I would have something to gain from it. And so whether by laziness or contempt or actual fear, this man does nothing, and he shows himself to be what the master calls it, wicked servant. Wicked. That seems like a strong word there. That's what he is. And so we have a, a returning king's yield on investment. Well, that leaves us with one final point. Thirdly and finally here, I want you to notice a reigning king's righteous judgment reigning king's righteous judgment. Now, you know, when you hear that, you can't help but, but think about the way people out in the world view God. They say all of these various things about him, some things that are true and some things that are not true. And they say, because he is this way, I'm not going to worship him. I'm not going to follow him. But the truth is, friends, if they really believed he was that way, then the thing that they should do is follow him, right? If they really believe that there was a God in heaven, then they should follow him. Because notice, doing nothing, what does it result in? Verse 24, he says, Take this man's one mina and give it to the man who has ten. Now, this was surprising to everyone who was around. They say, Lord... How could you take what little this man has and now give it to this man who, who has so many things? Well, look at the response there in verse 26. He says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has, even what he has will be taken away. Now, admittedly, this is a hard, hard statement, right? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around just exactly what Jesus is trying to say to us. But when you think about this from a purely business standpoint, right? This was the right move. Take it from the person who was doing nothing with it and give it to the one who had invested well, who would give you a return. Friends, it's there. It's there that Jesus is, is driving to our hearts today. Okay? It's there that, that we can take this and we can apply it to our lives. As God's people, Christ has entrusted to each of us a host of good gifts. We could go and we could begin to, to list them all. Our intellects, our finances. Most of all, he has given us himself. He has given us the deposit of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And he intends, as the king, for us to use those gifts for his glory. Again, it's not an option. That, that's the command. That, that's what he intends for each of us. He hasn't given us these things so that we can take them and hide them away somewhere in the back. He certainly hasn't given them to us so that we can go out and exalt ourselves. 
No, his command is that we faithfully use them to invest in his kingdom so that like the king's minor, the gifts of God might produce more gifts in the lives of others. Again, notice that. It's his gifts that produce the gifts. What he calls you and I to today is faithfulness. It's to be faithful with those gifts. Because what happens to those who don't? The gift is taken away. And it is given to those who will use it accordingly. Now, I'll be honest, I've struggled with just exactly what that means in the bigger picture of things. And that's the this trouble with parables. And sometimes we dig too deep and maybe we should leave it there. You know, clearly Jesus is not implying a loss of salvation given what the whole Bible says. Uh, maybe this servant was someone who was just a nominal Christian. Maybe he didn't really trust in the king. And maybe this was uh, the, the reality of that. Whatever it is, whatever it means, friends, the reality is, is Christ has called us to faithfully use the things that he has given us to serve him. Now look, as I say that, and as I stand here before you as a person in the position that I'm in, uh, let me say to you that I recognize in my own life that I have failed to take opportunities far more than I have taken them, right? For each of us, when we hear this message, we can't help but feel the guilt, the weight of opportunities gone past. As a church, we can't help but feel the weight of those opportunities gone past, right? Again, this is where the, the beauty of the gospel comes. Jesus comes to each one of us, and he is faithful to forgive us when we come and confess our sins, but he's also faithful to take our weakness, to take our struggles, to take the, the efforts that we give that are fleeting and, and really bad. He's faithful to take those to do amazing things with them. Friends, read your Bibles. The, the story of redemptive history is chock full of people and truths just like this. People like Jacob and Moses and Paul and Peter who struggled, who sometimes did really well and sometimes did really bad. Their efforts were sporadic, right? Sporadic faithfulness. God used them in amazing ways. So again, the question is, is will you invest your gifts? Will you be faithful with what Christ has given you. He will bring the, the reward. He will bring the return. Will you invest? Well, as we conclude, notice there's one final point to be made here, and that's there in verse 27. Uh, the enemies who had sent the delegation before, uh, the king has, has not forgotten about them. Uh, he says, bring them here before me and slaughter them all. Again, this is a hard statement. And it seems to suggest that, that what the, uh, that last final servant said about his master was true, maybe. Maybe he was that kind of master. But friends, what this is a reminder to us of is apart from Christ, God is that vengeful, wrathful God. That one day that he will return and those who have not put their faith in Jesus, this is what they will face. A king, a reigning king whose authority he brings with him. Again, it's a reminder to us. It's a question to us. Who are you trusting in today? Are you resting in Christ? Friends, 
Trust in him. Believe in him. Begin to use those gifts that he has given you to invest in his eternal kingdom as we pray together. Father, we pray that you would uh, show us ways that that we can use uh, our lives, that we can pour them out for your service. Lord, we thank you for the way that you bless us and you do so mightily and faithfully. Uh, And Lord, you are the one who gives the return. And so we look to you to do that. Uh, But Lord, just help us to be faithful as we go out into this world. Help us to serve you in every area, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our businesses, whether it's here at this church, wherever we may be. Uh, Lord, help us to spend our lives for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.